You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Dear loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would now tune our hearts to hear your word. Help me to speak your words and take them and make them yours, that we would know you, that we would love you, and that we would walk in your ways. This we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as you probably gathered from the prayers, I do not come from this country. I don't have the Muscle Shoals sound in my voice. And I'm currently in the midst of applying for a green card uh, so, that I can continue, so I can continue to live in the same country as my wife. Uh, and this process isn't really that difficult at all. There's no physical test, which I'd definitely fail. There's no intellectual test. It's not really that hard. I just have to fill out a few forms, write a few checks, send a few things in the mail. It's not that difficult at all. But emotionally and mentally and spiritually, it's actually quite a grueling process. And the main reason for that is just my lack of control. I have no control in the process at all. I have to just sit and wait, hoping that this lady, I assume she's a lady, sitting at this desk will one day decide that I can stay in this country. She has so much weight and power over my life. She can make a decision that will significantly affect where I live and where I work and what I can do. I have no control over this process and it's really starting to kill me. I'm really getting a little bit anxious. But I'm sure this experience isn't unique to me of having a lack of control. Uh, An actor, Anna McGann, uh, in her memoir about her wrestle with, with God and with her body issues and her sexuality... She writes of her eight-year-old self. She writes this, It was night. I was in my single bed. It was home to 15 stuffed animals. And that night I had written a letter to God. It was one page, direct and vulnerable. It detailed my thoughts, my doubts, my questions. It ended very sincerely. If you are real, please take this letter while I'm sleeping. I left the letter by my bedside table, expectant. I was terrified something might actually happen. I wanted to know the ways of the invisible things. I needed to know if heaven was real enough to receive my gift. This letter was my whole being condensed into a searching, fumbling question. Are you real? When I woke in the morning, the envelope was exactly where I'd left it. My little heart hit angrily against my chest. How could you have been such a child? Whoever God was, he did not have time for my terms. Eight-year-old Anna, like the rest of us, wanted some control. She wanted to know God, but on her terms, in a way that she could understand, in a way that she could comprehend and pack into a, a neat little box so that she could make sense of her place in the world. And this desire for control, for God to show himself in a way that we can understand is what we see in our passage in Luke this morning. Three times Jesus is mocked. If you really are God, you would show us. If you really were God, you would prove it to us on our terms. But this experience is nothing new, is it? This is how it's been from the beginning, since Adam and Eve ate the apple in the garden, ate the fruit in the garden. We humans have wanted control over our own lives. We want to be in charge. We want to know what's going on. We want to be 
the ones to make the decisions. Over the past few months, we've been following Jesus through Luke's historical account. And we saw how he gathered disciples around him, how he healed the sick, how he cast out demons, and how he demanded his followers lay down their life for him. He was, in many ways, a revolutionary, come to change the order of things, to overturn the old order, bringing woes to the ruling class. He came to transform the world, setting all the wrongs right again. And in the beginning of Luke's account, we're told this about Jesus, that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And yet, 22 chapters later, it seems like it's all going pear-shaped. From all appearances, it looks like God's promises are failing. As we see in verse 33, with just four words, it all comes crashing down. There, they crucified him. If you've just tuned in, the revolution is over, the king is dead. It's no wonder that Jesus is mocked at this point. This is a humiliating way to end what looked like such a promising start. As we see in the different reactions of those who were there, some of them were taking full advantage of this turn of events. In verse 35, Luke notes that the crowds are there watching, waiting to see what's going to happen, fascinated by the, the events unfolding before them. But in contrast, the rulers are scoffing at him, mocking him and saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. You can almost taste the pride on their tongues, can't you, in their voice. These are probably the same people who uh, had been at that dinner party that Jesus came in and rebuked them for being hypocrites. It may have included some of the people who were selling things in the temple when Jesus came and just kind of wrecked the place, turning over tables and claiming that they'd made the temple into a den of robbers. Well, in verse 36, we're told that the soldiers also get in on the act. They offer him sour wine, and then in verse 37, they continue to mock Jesus, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They put an inscription over his head in verse 38, this is the king of the Jews. And then the mocking culminates in verse 39 when even a criminal who's hanging right next to him says, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The reports about Jesus' miracles had been spreading. They'd heard about how he'd healed the sick and how he'd cast out demons, how he'd even raised the dead. They'd heard about the salvation that he was bringing and his claims to be the king of Israel. And now they want him to prove it. If you really are who you say you are, show us. Save yourself and us right here, right now. Prove it to us on our terms. But there's one man who recognizes what's going on. The other criminal hanged on the other side of Jesus, a man named Dissimus. He rebukes the first criminal and explains that Though the two of them are being rightly punished for their wrongdoing, Jesus is being unjustly punished. So then he turns to Jesus and says these famous words, 
Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man can see what's going on. And through the Spirit's work in him, he recognizes that this is no ordinary crucifixion. Well, in Jesus' response, we're given a glimpse of hope. Though it appears that all is lost and everything is kind of spiraling out of control, Jesus reassures this criminal and he reassures you and me that this is all part of his plan. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. In the foreground, it looks like evil is triumphing, that God is losing and that Jesus is powerless. It looks like the human project has kind of come to its ultimate conclusion and we kind of see what happens when humans are in charge. What happens is that we reject God, we, we mock Him and we crucify Him. For the disciples who'd been following Jesus from the very beginning, this must have been crushing for them. All of their expectations, all of their, their hopes and their dreams are coming crashing down before them. And it, it appears that Jesus of Nazareth is just another one of these false prophets, another revolutionary, another troublemaker, crucified as just a common criminal. But in the background, we see that God is working. God is waiting patiently, knowing that this is the way that it had to be, knowing that his kingdom had to come through this cross, that this is how Jesus would be crowned as king. Jesus reminds us of this again and again throughout the Gospel of Luke. Three times he predicts his death. And a third time in Luke 18 he says, Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. The crucifixion doesn't come as any surprise to Jesus. It hasn't caught God off guard at, at, at any point. This isn't plan B to what's going on. But this was God's plan from the very beginning. It's what all the law and the prophets have been talking about. It's what all the promises of God were pointing to. So we mustn't be tempted to read this story in isolation. We need to read this story in the context of the chapter and of the book and of the whole Bible. Because while in the foreground, from what we can see, it seems like Jesus of Nazareth is being mocked and crucified, but standing in the background is a symphony of Old Testament passages and prophecies that look forward to this very point in time. A great crowd of witnesses anticipating and rejoicing over what is about to happen. When the king who humbly entered in on a donkey would be installed into his kingdom and crowned as the king. For this very event is the coronation service of the king, the inauguration service of the new world leader. Long live the king. But it doesn't quite happen as we would expect, does it? It doesn't come on our terms. And we see in this passage that when we impose our agenda onto Jesus, he remains distant from us. He remains unknown to us and we become like those who stand there and mock. When we want God to prove himself on our terms so that we're in control, this event seems very foolish to us. It's only when 
God works in our heart and we give up that control that we so desire, when we submit ourselves to Jesus and to His kingdom, when we come with open hands to Him and confess that we are wrong, and when we trust in His death and resurrection for us, it's only then that we can see that this truly is the King of Israel, the King of the world. To us, it seems foolish that the God who created the heavens and the earth would subject His Son to this kind of cruel and unusual punishment. Much like those who mock Jesus, if we were in charge, if we were writing the story, we would have this kind of triumphant King, someone who rides in on a majestic horse, who's triumphant over everyone, who's stronger than any other person, a mighty warrior who conquers everything, a King who brings peace to Israel, overthrowing the Roman Empire that has been oppressing Israel and re-establishing the kingdom of Israel, bringing it back to the glory it had under King David and King Solomon. But as Jesus reminds us, His kingdom is not of this world. His battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of the world. And this is how it had to be. This was the plan from the very beginning, that the one who came to serve must be the one who suffers. For it's only through the cross, through His suffering and death, that we can be forgiven, that we could be with Him in paradise. As Decimus explains, the criminals were receiving the due reward for their deeds, but Jesus had done nothing wrong. He was innocent. But at the cross, Jesus, uh, Jesus receives the due rewards for our deeds. He takes the punishment that we deserve and is killed in our place, the innocent one in the place of the guilty. As the prophet Isaiah says, He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. He does this so that the very ones that mock Him might be forgiven, so that we might be forgiven. And the irony of the people's mocking finds its fulfillment in this. At the, cross of Jesus, at the cross, Jesus proves that He is the very Christ, God's anointed one, the King of Israel. And by not saving Himself, by hanging there and dying, He offers salvation to us and to the world that has rejected Him. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon His shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held Him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Praise be to God. Let me pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the great gift of grace You have given us by Your Son in sending Him to die for us. 
We ask that we would be ever more thankful of that great love you've poured out on us through him. Father, this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.